Welcome to Video Store. I'm Sam Mulberry. Today we're going to be talking about the 1964 Stanley Kubrick classic, Dr. Strangelove, or How I Learned to Stop Worrying and Love the Bomb. So let's grab a glass of rainwater and step into Baird Fisher's video store. Uh, Baird, Baird, how are you doing? I'm doing well, Sam. Uh, I do not have any grain alcohol. <laughs> All right. We'll have to stick with the rainwater. Um <laughs> Uh, I'm going to start with, uh, with, with my normal question here. Cause I actually want to spend a little bit of time talking about, um, our history with this film. You've already talked about this as probably your favorite comedy. I think this was in the five movies you love that we did in the first episode. Um, this is also a movie that I love. It's from a director that I think we both, uh, we both like a great deal. So tell me your history with Dr. Strangelove. I would have to guess, um, and I think it's pretty close guess, that I would have seen Strange Love um, on TV. You know, back in the late 60s, early 70s, I was growing up. You watched a lot of older movies on TV. I think I mentioned meeting Jimmy Cagney that way. And I'm quite confident that would have been my first encounter with, uh, with Strange Love and with, with Kubrick. So it goes back quite a ways. Would it have been edited as a, as a TV movie? I was thinking about that. Um, I don't think so there's a couple places maybe but um i don't i don't remember the terrible thing about watching movies on tv of course is it gets interrupted with commercials um but i i don't i don't remember that there was much editing okay um and then this is a movie that you've uh how many times do you think you've seen this movie if you were it's, to estimate it's got to be close to a dozen it, it's got it's got to be i mean between watching it just for the fun of it showing it to friends using it in class Probably I, was probably, I probably watched it about as much as I've watched anything. Uh, do you have a favorite viewing experience of this movie? Because I def- I ask because I definitely do. Well, I, let me say this may be my most memorable viewing experience. Um, when Amy and I and the, fam- the rest of the family would have uh, students from abroad, most frequently Japanese, we were always trying to find ways to entertain them. And um, so film was often a way of doing that. So what's really successful are silent films. What's, what, what's not so successful are films that rely on um, satire or humor because there are so many linguistic and social and cultural norms at work. And so I remember showing Strange Love to one of our Japanese friends. He was a graduate student. His English was very good. And he couldn't understand what was supposed to be funny about it um, or, or even satirical about it. So that, that that's my, it was maybe my most memorable experience is being with somebody who totally did not get the film. And then I realized it was because despite what I'm going to say about some of the quote universal elements of the film, it is still very culturally bound as a work of art. Absolutely. Uh, I will say I first watched this movie probably in probably 98 or 99. And the reason I can place it there is because uh, I remember so this would have been towards the end of college. And I remember watching the uh the it was like i think it might have been a, even a three-hour thing on tv when they rolled out the initial afi 100 list and i remember watching that and like taking notes and i wrote down a bunch of movies that i'm like i need to see this i need to see this and then i started to go to the library and would check out movies so i think this was uh probably the first time that i saw casablanca f- f- um other movies from there and i remember strange love was on there so i was like okay i should probably watch this because it was pretty it was in the top 25 i think in that initial list i think it was like 23 uh, or 26 somewhere in there and i remember checking it out and i didn't know much about it and looking at the cover and in my head this was a black and white movie about 
the Cold War, and it was going to be very serious. Like I didn't, I didn't know anything about it. And then this movie played out in front of me, um, and and I really loved it. Although I was, just, I didn't, I didn't know. I, it was so much not what I expected, which we, as we've said before, is often a very great thing. And then I've seen it over the years, and I think this is probably my fifth time seeing it. And the thing that struck me was every time I've seen it, I like it more. I mean, I, I honestly, I think, I think after watching it this week, it has moved itself into the conversation of, oh, this is my, this is my favorite like funny movie. This is my favorite comedy. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's in the conversation with Lebowski and a couple other things where mm-hmm. I did, this one's just one that I'm going to keep going back to. Cause this was, this was my favorite experience in terms of enjoying the film, watching it. My f- most memorable experience watching it was the last time I saw it. Um, we were in Paris. We were leading a, a trip, um, a study abroad trip. And whenever we were in Paris, Chris Gertz and I would find there's lots of old movie houses in Paris and we would find a movie house that was playing a, you know, an old classic movie. Um, so one year we went and saw rear window, uh, and, but one year it was Dr. Strange love and, and we, we, and it was like a, probably an 11 PM showing. We tried to convince as many students as we could to come to the movies with us. So a bunch of us went and saw Dr. Strange love in this tiny little theater in Paris. And it's just sort of like, so it's like a kind of romantic version of watching a movie like this. Um, and mm-hmm. I, so, and I, I loved it. Now I will say that experience because it was at 11 PM, I was exhausted and I was very like sleepy watching it. So I don't think I couldn't, I enjoyed the experience more than the movie. Um, but this time around, I actually watched it really early in the morning and it, that's, I'm going to do that for the rest of my life is just watch, <laughs> watch the movies that I love in the morning. Cause this is a movie that has so much to pay attention to. And like you said, linguistically, it's so funny. Um, so I think my mind needs to be sharp to fully enjoy what's going on. <laughs> so this comes at an interesting, um, right in the middle of an interesting run of movies for Stanley Kubrick. So I want to think about, I want to start before we get into the movie specifically, I want to think a little bit about Kubrick. So uh, in 1956, he makes the killing 1957 paths of glory, 1960 Spartacus, 1962 Lolita. And then 1964 is Dr. Strangelove. Um, now I will, I will say I've seen everything Kubrick made from Strangelove on. I, I actually am embarrassed to say I've never seen the killing paths of glory spartacus or lolita and i feel really bad saying i've never seen paths of glory because i've taught courses on world war one i've seen big chunks of it but i've never actually sat down and watched the whole movie of paths of glory so i'm confessing that here what i'm wondering is if somebody were you know if it was 1964 and somebody were you know kind of paying attention to what was happening in movies is strange love a movie they would have seen coming from kubrick i mean think as i'm thinking about what i know about the killing paths of glory spartacus i don't know that i mean i've read the book lolita i don't know the to- the tone of his movie version of that but this seems like a departure yeah i think yeah, i think that's a really good question sam yeah you're right if i think about the lineup to to strange love um it's not as though kubrick had showed any particular uh interest in satire he hadn't shown any particular interest in comedy at at all um what he had shown interest in however uh is war um his first film um the title of which i can absolutely never remember because i always get it confused with woody allen's love and death um but it's a really really interesting film um so that 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 had that and it's about a war it's about soldiers during a war war uh, and then, of course, of course, uh, Paths of Glory uh, is a fear. Fear and Desire is the fear movie. And you're desire, yes, 
Yes. Uh, really, really, really interesting film. I recommend it. Um, but anyway, it just became available DVD in recent years. Um, uh, obviously, Paths of Glory, great World War One film. Uh, Spartacus, um, of which he was not the original director. Um, he never really regarded it as a Kubrick film. What happened with Spartacus, if I can do a little aside, is that uh, Anthony Mann was supposed to direct it and um, Kirk Douglas was producing and Douglas didn't like what Mann was doing. Douglas had had a good experience with Kubrick in uh, Paths of Glory. So uh, Douglas brought Kubrick in and then was actually very unhappy with what resulted, even though most people think it's a great film, but Kirk Douglas wasn't happy with it. So that so that's always been sort of been considered a child of the left hand as far as Kubrick's concerned. But still, that interest in war is one of the really consistent themes in Kubrick's uh, body of work. Because after Strange Love, you have um, Barry Lyndon, which is a, which is a war film, and then you have um, Full Metal Jacket, uh, also war films. So in that sense, a film involving war and violence, I would not have been surprised, came from Kubrick. Uh, and then if we think about sort of directly coming out, I mean, this is, this is a, to, to think about this run from Spartacus, which is 1960 to a clockwork orange in 1971 in 11 years, he makes five movies. Four of them are on the AFI top 100 list. Like, I mean, uh, he's, it, it seems like he's this very prolific filmmaker and then really, I mean, he made Barry Lyndon in 1975, um, the Shining in 1980. Then there's only two more Kubrick movies in the last those last uh, 20 years. Um, uh, what I find interesting is thinking about what maybe are his regarded as his two greatest movies: Strange Love and 2001: A Space Odyssey, which come back to back in his filmography, but couldn't be more different in terms of almost everything about them. Yeah, that's, that's one of the things I really lo I love about Kubrick because there is a definite Kubrick style. You know, there's something distinctive about a Kubrick film, and yet he never, as you said, he he never repeated himself. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if, if, if the, the films are all quite different in tone, style, length, um, and with almost every film, he did something new, technological. Um, you know, he's famous in uh, shooting Barry Lyndon, all those indoor scenes of uh, the 18th century scenes are candlelit. Mm -hmm. um, and so that required actually inventing a new kind of lens uh, in order to get adequate light, light for that. Um, and he famously did not make an AI for many, many years and never ended up making it because uh, he, the technology didn't match the vision he had. Um, and of course, he's, he's known for regretting after the astronauts went into space, he regretted that he didn't do a good enough job of making the Earth blue in uh, 2001. <laughs> um, so what makes a Kubrick, I mean, you talked about him having sort of some distinct uh, or a distinct style. What makes a Kubrick movie great? Because one of the things that I will say about everything that I've seen from him, um, some of the project, some some of them I like more than others. Some of them I think are more uh, completely successful than others, but they're all, it's, it's kind of like we talked about with Spike Lee, where it's like, there's everything he does. There's is elevated beyond just sort of a, a regular, I mean, when you watch a Kubrick movie, it's, it is, it's for me, at least it's an event to see. And it's, um, and there's something great about them, even if the movies aren't entirely perfect. What, what makes a Kubrick movie great? I, I think I think at one level, to me, what makes the Kubrick movie great is just that um, it always gives me something to think about. 
You know, I think that, you know, I, I've tried to pick films for the series where they're really worth thinking about talking about, you know, my wife and I have a thing where we say, if we're still talking about the movie the next day, then it's, then it's a good movie. So I think that, to me, that's one of the things that's really interesting about a Kubrick film is, is he takes a topic or a set of characters and he, he gets you thinking about them in ways that you didn't expect to think about them. So I remember maybe the best example for me of this is, um, and it goes along with the second quality, which is he gets really great performances out of his actors, um, most of whom never want to work with him again. <laughs> um, in fact, I think, I was trying to think about this, I think Sterling Hayden might have been the only actor I can think of off the top of my head that worked with him twice. Hayden was the lead in The Killing, and then he was Jack Ripper in, in Strange Love. But I think The Shining is a good example because when The Shining came out, to be frank, I was really disappointed in it. Um, I remember being all excited about it, seeing the previews over and over again, and then going to the to, to watch it and thinking, oh, it, it actually wasn't all that scary. But every time I go back to that film, I like it better and better and find it scarier and scarier and much deeper levels than than a typical scary scary film. And maybe that's another characteristic of any great film, especially a Kubrick film, is it keeps revealing new layers as you go as you go, as you keep returning to it. So it's really like a good book. Um, mm -hmm. Good books can be read many times. And one of the qualities of a good book when you read it is, it's not just you, the reader have changed and therefore the book has changed. So the movies look different depending on the age at which you watch them in the context. Absolutely, it's, it's interesting that you you bring up, you know, AI as a project he was working, considering and 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 didn't end up making um a few years ago i went on a big stanley kubrick kick both in terms of watching his films but also watching films documentaries about him mm -hmm. and there was a project in the late 60s early 70s that he was obsessed yeah. with which is a big napoleon epic napoleon, yes, and, with Jack Nicholson. yeah and and when I, whenever I w would get to a point in a documentary where they would talk about that my heart would break because that's the movie i want to see like Sometimes, you know, Ann and I will be talking about like, oh, do you want to you want to watch a movie? We try to figure out what we want to watch. And sometimes I just feel like I want to watch the Kubrick Napoleon movie. That's what I want to watch. And it doesn't exist in part because the movie Waterloo came out and then it just and that didn't do well. And then it was just like, OK, well, that's not that project just got got shelved. And uh, I I'm fascinated by how Kubrick would have told uh, would have told that story. And, and, and that actually makes another interesting point, Sam, and that is that Kubrick succeeds in my mind of being both an art house and a popular director at the same time. That, that somehow he makes movies that you could certainly show as a quote art film, but at the same time, he always wanted to reach an audience. Um, you know, as fussy an artist as he was, he was never, um, he was never interested in uh, having a, a limited audience. So, so let's let's dive into the the movie itself here. Um, as you said, this is you're in double figures for the number of times you've seen this. Uh, what were things that jumped out to you viewing it this this week? Well, you know, one of the things that I was concerned about when I went back to the film about probably about ten years ago when I was teaching it in one of my film classes, and um, I I at, the, at that time I, I hesitated at picking it because even though I knew the film well I still thought to myself well you know it's a film largely about mutual assured destruction and at that time that I was thinking the nuclear threat wasn't that great um, so I thought you know maybe the film isn't going to resonate much with with, with in today and so what I have found remarkable is how incredibly literally topical the film remains. 
So, I, I mean, and just to, to tick off a few things, um, I had just read recently that the so-called doomsday clock, which is this, uh, which was established in 1947 by Society of Atomic Physicists to estimate how close we were to destroying ourselves with our technologies. The doomsday clock has never been closer to midnight than it is right now. Hmm. 100 seconds to midnight. Now, the doomsday clock isn't just about nuclear conflict, it's also about environmental issues as well. But here's the other irony, which I didn't discover until I looked into it. At the time that Strangelove was released, the doomsday clock was the farthest from midnight that it had ever been. It was actually 12 minutes to midnight. Really? And that was because of the Cuban Missile Crisis. Because after the Cuban Missile Crisis, that's when the hotline between the Kremlin and the White House was established, which is in the film, of course, in, in August. So establishing the hotline actually was intended, and here's, here's one of the ironies of the film, establishing the, the hotline was actually intended to make the world safer. So consequently, so, so now we're living in a world which is even more dangerous than Strangelove depicts in terms of the nuclear, uh, in terms of the doomsday clock. Uh, and then just in terms of the nuclear threat, just this week, you know, China announced its plan to build a great nuclear arsenal. Uh, and of course, we've all we've been dancing around North Korea for several years. Um, I would have thought in 2007 when I when I went back to the film, um, you know, the, the walls come down, the Soviet Union's broken up. Uh, Russia's not our enemy anymore. Um, that doesn't seem to be the case as uh, we hear talk about the uh, next next election. Um, how about how about living in a world of conspiracy conspiracy Ooh, theories? Right, fluoridation, man, Drake. How's that for your commie conspiracy? Children's ice cream, and then the one. Okay, so here was one of the new things I that either I noticed for the first time or made a difference for the first time. Fake news. When D. Sadesky says that they had a report that the Americans were working on a doomsday device of their own, right? And the president says, "How did how did you?" what's your source of information he says it was the new york times <laughs> so that's that's a that's a that's, that sweeps the board sam it's like everything i just mentioned is completely topical and the film addresses all those things right right so how did i mean, it was actually this is one of the questions i had so i'm curious that you had students watch us in 2007 which means those are students who would have been maybe born in the late 80s um so, but but definitely not had memories, Cold War memories at all. Now, I'm a child of the 80s, but the 80s, we ramped up at least Cold War rhetoric again. So, like, so this, when I watched this movie in the late 90s, it spoke to something that was at least a history I sort of lived through, or at least I remember Reagan era Cold War. Um, so how did, how did students respond to it um, when, the, for them, the Cold War was, was history? The Cold War parts, but at least. Yeah. Well, um, you know, I, I guess, you know, the, the, the emphasis in, to, in when, when, I, when I used it in the class, you know, part of my emphasis was helping them to think about it in terms of a genre, uh, helping them think about it in terms of what it means to make to make a black comedy, um, what it means to use language the way the film uses, uses language. So in a sense, I kind of worked in a way kind of not acting as though the content wasn't important, but saying that there's so much more going on in the film that you can get in kind of, you can get them to kind of fill in the content. You know, you give them a little bit of historical background, but basically what you want them to do is, and it worked, I thought, you know, I think people really felt engaged because once they understood how, how the comedy was, was working, um, and that to me is what still runs deepest in the film, the critique of human behavior uh, that, that the film enacts, and, and which is another very typical 
uh, element of Kubrick. Kubrick is uh, extraordinarily um, pessimistic uh, about human beings and uh, and and human life, and the film the film captures that. So to me. Uh, maybe, maybe teaching the film to the students that we have at a place like Bethel, um, where I think that we want to be um, optimistic about the world and hopeful and all that. I think that was maybe the biggest, the biggest challenge that the film, the film presented. And I, and I got, I got to read you a great Kubrick quote. Uh, and I don't remember when Kubrick said this, but it, it's appropriate for the film. He says the destruction of this planet would have no significance on a cosmic scale. Our extinction would be little more than a match flaring for a second in the heavens. And if that match does blaze in the darkness, there will be none to mourn a race that used a power that could have lit a beacon to the stars to light its own funeral pyre. Hmm. <laughs> and that, that it's interesting because that actually speaks to one of the versions of, I can't remember now. We can talk a little bit about the, uh, the complexities of the, uh, Kind of stuff around the story and the source material and the movie mm-hmm. fail safe um but one of the i can't remember if it was the source material red alert or the source material for the movie fail safe which was plagiarized from red alert but one of those stories actually is bookended by aliens coming to earth after this destruction and trying to figure out what happened right so mm-hmm. it's sort of that idea of like like this is just a this sort of blip over here and it's like oh we'll try to solve this mystery of like what happened to this um what <laughs> happened to this planet have you ever seen the movie Failsafe? You know, that's been on my, I, I, I thought you would probably ask me that, Sam, and I have to confess, I, I still never have, even though I've read about it and it's got a great cast and by all accounts, it's a really good film, although it bombed at the box office, uh, evidently. Yeah, so just for, for listeners, at least this is how I, as I was reading, how I understand the story is that Kubrick got bought the rights to this novel, Red Alert, and was working on the screenplay with the novels author and um and another screenwriter and then there was another work that um at least the the author of red alert claimed was plagiarized from his work and that work was called Failsafe. and then another movie come in with very similar themes um and kubrick actually took legal action to make sure that Failsafe didn't come out before uh before strange love to the point where i think is it was it columbia pictures is that what this was yeah Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. that they that they were um, as part of the settlement, they bought Failsafe and made sure that it came out like six months after Strangelove so that it wouldn't sort of steal the thunder of of, of Dr. Strangelove. Well, Strangelove itself, as you probably know, had to be delayed. Um, it was supposed to open in November of 63, just a couple of days before Kennedy was, was assassinated. So it was delayed to 64. You know, you and I always have this conversation, how do you date a film? Well, it was actually right. before. And, and one of the little tidbits of the film is when they open the survival pack and Slim Pickens uh, is reading about the contents and he says, shoot a fellow could have himself a pretty good time in Vegas. Well, the actual line is Dallas. Um, and they brought Pickens in to overdub it. Uh, so it would be Vegas. And it works really well. Even if you try to lip sync, it's hard to see that he's saying they, uh, Dallas, but he is. So one of the things that I that I want to think about, or maybe a way to talk about this, is that there are three distinct settings in this um, in this movie, and and in some ways there 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 are three movies that are related, but even the the tones of some of those movies are are different. Um, mm-hmm. So um, first we have the the sort of two person movie um, with uh, with Mandrake and Ripper, because uh, Ripper uh, Ripper is the one who um, sends the the order for the wing command to, to perform this action. Um, 
And so we have Peter Sellers playing, playing Mandrake. Um, and I think I, I just, I love even the way that he discovers, I mean, he's Mandrake wants to follow orders, wants to do things, but he also thinks that there are sort of, um, systems in place. So when he finds the radio, like, and it's, it's like such a great, like detective moment where he's like, he turns on the radio and he says, listen to this. It's music on civilian radio. And then when he first says that, I'm like, what does that have to do with anything? And then he explains, well, wouldn't this wouldn't be on if we were in this crisis and, and it kicks <laughs> off this relationship between these two, these two characters. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then you watch him realize what's going on. That's, that's what I, that's what I really love. So, right. Right. And, 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 and Ripper, as you talked about with conspiracy theory, I mean, he sounds like an anti-vaxxer, right? Like it, you know, if this were 2020, right. like it's, it's um, that, that, that it's, it's those, those types of, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Those types of conspiracies that he's talking about, and, and another little aside, Sam. The the the, the uh, song playing on the radio is an American jazz version of Greensleeves. Oh, I didn't, I didn't get that. <laughs> and then that that also leads to after after Ripper kills himself, um, uh, and then the uh, the well, there's it's actually a really dis. I, I was very disturbed um, watching um, before. Uh, so Ripper seals off the base, and then mm-hmm. they send in the army to to get him. And there are there are c- scenes of basically American soldiers at war with American soldiers. Yeah, exactly. Which yeah. is like in this movie, that's very funny. Like I found myself like mo- moved and di- and just deeply disturbed by that image. Um, yeah. And you know, and he he shoots it. I mean, it just feels like documentary war footage. Uh, you know, and and you're thinking, and you're you know, you're watching these people shoot, and you're seeing these other folks come, and you're like these are all Americans and, 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 and they're all just following orders, right? They're just doing what they're, what they've been told to do. And most, and most of the scenes are shot in front of the huge sign saying pieces are profession. Right. Right. <laughs> and then there's the, the great moment after, um, after Ripper kills himself when the, uh, I can't think of the guy's name, the other, the other, uh, soldier who was, who was raiding the base. Major, ba- major bat guano. That's right. <laughs> A lot of great names in this book. <laughs> that really I mean, is name. yeah. Right. <laughs> Um, and, and Mandrake is trying to get a connection with the, uh, with the, with the war room, with the white house. And there's the thing with the Coca-Cola machine <laughs> and there's this sort of creeping sense of like, yes, you have these major superpowers, but then you also have corporate superpowers. Right. And, 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 and right. And, but also the notion of applying normal kind of applying normal assumptions in, in these extraordinary circumstances. So mm-hmm. you have the white house or the war room refusing the collect call. Right, and, and then and then you have you know Major Bat Guano saying you know that's private property. So you have one, you know one, one of the cornerstones of our legal system, right? The notion of private property. You have to answer the Coca Cola Corporation. Well, of course, the absurdity is you know here we are all about to die in a nuclear holocaust. We're not really going to worry too much about private property, and 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 that and that's the kind of stuff that Kuba just kind of keeps doing over and over, like when. Um, when Kong tells the soldiers that after uh, the other guys on the plane that after this is all over, they'll be in line for some personal citations. Well, throughout right. the world, there's not going to be any more personal citations. Right, right, and 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 that's where I, I love that you know Mandrake because he's an outsider too, right? He's a British, he's a British soldier in some ex, uh, British uh, uh, captain in some exchange program, and he's like the the one person who's constantly pointing out the absurdity of everything Ripper is saying, but he's also trying to do it very respectfully. That's what it's just there. there so there's this kind of propriety of rank, yes. but also, but also like, but you see, this doesn't make any sense. And, and I love the point where he's, he's trying to, um, 
coax Rick, uh, Ripper into thinking he's on his side, and he's like, "Remember, remember a few minutes ago when I when you were shooting the gun and I was feeding you?" And and it's just like just the way he. It's such a funny. I mean, Sellers has three very funny performances in here, but that one is uh, is one I forget about because I think you remember the president, and you remember Strange Love, but I think the uh, I think the Mandrake character is really really funny. And I, and I also have to say another reason why this movie to me is just such is so well made in so many respects, Sam, uh, Sam is that none of those lines are out of, are out of, are out of place. When he says "feeding me," the fact that he uses the image of in, of ingestion and food is actually important because so much of what the film is about is what basic human appetites, mm -hmm. appetite for sex, appetites for food, appetites for violence, those basic drives. Um, affect everything that we do. So in each of those three different scenes, you have people eating. You've got the, uh, when, when the message comes in over the CRM, uh, the, uh, the, 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 radio, the radio guy taking the message, he's eating a sandwich. Uh, mm -hmm. The Russian ambassador shows up in the war room and he's- a huge spread. A huge buffet. Uh, you know, so it's like th there, there's this constant reminder, even, even when Turgeson gets the call at the beginning and the, the room he comes out of significantly is not described as the bathroom, it's the powder room. Which of course, you know, is where you keep munitions. Um, and 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 he come and he comes out, and the first thing he does, he, you know, he slaps his stomach like it's a big, big war drum. So there's this this constant reminder that these men who are in charge of these machines are also very human at a very basic, what we would call incarnational level. And everything they do ultimately comes out of their bodies, which is why the body is the theme for Ripper, right? Our mm -hmm. our 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 bodily, our bodily essence, our precious bodily fluids. Right, right, and and I love um to 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 jump maybe to the war room. I love when um, Turgeson is reading the the comments from from Ripper, and it all sounds. And then it then he says the thing. Of, it ends with bodily fluids, and he's like, "We're still trying to figure out what he means by." It. I can't remember what he says, but it's it's just this very funny moment where you realize, oh, we know because we've seen that. But they're just seeing, you know, they're only, everybody's dealing with partial information. And he's like, I, I don't know what he means by that. And of course, of course, Muffley Merkin says it's quite obvious the man is insane. <laughs> right, right, right. Again, sell, the, that seller character also sort of trying to, to establish some sense of reason surrounded by people who um, have a kind of logic to the way they think, but it's not necessarily a, a totally rational logic. I, mean, I, I, I also want to say, Sam, back to one of your opening questions, now that you've said that about um, Sellers and Three Roles. When I've showed this film, I have had students not know that um, Sellers is playing those three roles. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, they, they either won't identify the president or they won't identify him as Strangelove. Um, and of course, he was supposed to play um, Kong as well. Right, um, right. But, but he backed out supposedly after an injury there's, there's debates over that supposedly, i think he also just didn't want to do it yeah it's more likely he just didn't want to do it <laughs> yeah i i the thing that i that i also really great about this this film because it cuts between these three stories and it's really intercut oftentimes when that happens there's one there's one story where you feel like oh shoot we have to go back to this and every i love every one of these like i i loved being on the plane this time <sighs> yeah I, I love how tactile and analog everything is and just, and, and it's, and you also see 
I mean, these are the people who are going to destroy the world, but you also see the professionalism in what they're doing, like everything they're, they're following systems. Um, I'd also, I have to say in 2020, it made me feel like I, I thought a lot about COVID protocols because there's mm-hmm. a lot of, we do this, we check this, we do this, we get this out, we look at this, we make sure we're doing, I mean, I would watch this in the, in the same time that I'm writing CD, seating charts for a class of 75 students and making sure everybody's where they're supposed to be. And it just, it made me think of, of, of that as well. Well, uh, also, I have to correct myself having talked about strain, about Sellers, because Sellers, of course, was in, is in Lolita. So he's another actor who actually is in more than one Kubrick film. But, you know, back to the B-52, I mean, that was, that interior was simply based on one photograph that Ken Adam had from a, uh, a British magazine. And it was so close, the Pentagon really wondered if somebody had like violated some some kind of security protocol. And that's another characteristic I would say of of Kubrick films is they are designed so beautifully. Uh, the war room is is an amazing design is as well. And I and I also one of the I think um, uh, this is a really great podcast episode on Unspooled uh, about this about Doctor Strangelove. So a lot of what I'm I listened to this last night, so I'm sort of trying to try to remember things they talked about. One of the things they talked about, I think James Earl Jones talked about. He's one of the the folks on the. Uh, I think it's his first movie role. One of the yep. folks on the B fifty two, and he talks about how Kubrick wanted the the rest of the film is basically white men, with the exception of the the one secretary. Um, but on the on the B fifty two, he wanted that to to be a more diverse crew, right? Because in some ways, that's representing um, that's representing the sort of common American to a certain degree. And a lot of this is about the breakdown or foolishness in the levels of leadership. But, but you, when you look at the actual soldiers, whether they're attacking the base or whether they're on the, the B-52, what you see, even though they're doing things that, I mean, it's soldiers killing American soldiers or it's soldiers blowing up the world. They're like super competent, <laughs> even mm-hmm. though, even though like Slim Pickens has a funny way of talking, like he is a hyper competent person in doing what he's doing when the, the the Bombay doors are are broken. He goes in and starts to do electrical work to fix it. And they're and they're not skipping steps. They're doing everything. And when the they don't have fuel to get where they want to go, they figure out where they can go so they can still do their mission. Um, and I, I just found that really interesting. Well, of course, what's interesting about that is it's, it's the very fact that they are able to um, improvise and extemporize. That is the reason why they get why they get through. And it's why. Um, the, I mean, e- e- even the notion of a fail-safe point is a kind of oxymoron about how things actually turn out. So, you know, so when the president says, you know, put all of your resources into Laputa and you can't miss him, well, that yes, you can because they're trained. So, so it's 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 ironic that the, that the the training enables them actually to evade the the system. So, right. uh, because in fact, they aren't just cogs in a machine. Right. And that actually that actually comes into uh, so we can get back to the war room with this. It comes into one of the great moments uh, with George C. Scott, who's brilliant in this movie. When the president asks him, you know, would they be able to reach their target? He starts to describe how well trained they are and how mm-hmm. that the B-50 and he's almost like acting out flying yeah. the B-52 and he gets so excited. He's like, of course, I mean, they can barrel it down so low. They'll never. And he and then he like realizes as he's saying it, he's saying, oh, that means they're going to succeed at there's a good chance they're going to succeed at destroying the world. And it's, it's just it's, it's this perfect moment because he's so excited about how well trained they are and how amazing this machinery is that he sort of forgets. Oh, I forgot. We actually don't want them to succeed in the same way when they get attacked um, when when the, the Soviets are trying to shoot them down 
they're sort of our heroes. So we're rooting for them to make it. And it's like, actually rooting for them to make it is rooting for the destruction of humanity. Exactly. Exactly. That's one more irony. Right. Right. Uh, Can we talk about the war room a little bit? I mean, there's, there's so much that happens here. Do you have, you have favorite war room moments or really poignant war room moments? Uh, I've probably got two favorite war room moments. Um, And, and one of course would be, I love the conversation between uh, Merkin and Kissoff. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 you know, it's another one of those things where in the midst of uh, nuclear apocalypse, um, we have them exchanging pleasantries. Mm-hmm. I'm fine. I'm glad you're fine. <laughs> yeah. we, it, it's, we, it's fine that we're fine. Um, and, 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 and then the moment when after he tells them, he says, well, how do you think I feel? I'm <laughs> sorry. I can be just as sorry as you. So I, I just love that that conversation. So then, did did you know that the stage direction for that was that he was supposed to talk like a sort of v- very cold and serious elementary school teacher? That's what the, that that was that yeah, was Seller's direction, and it's right. perfect. It's like perfect. that is, that's if you bad. listen to it, that's exactly what yeah, he is. Yeah. yeah, it reminds me when I was teaching, I get off the phone, and my and my daughter would say, "Oh, you were just talking to a student, weren't you? Because you were using your teacher voice." <laughs> um, and, and of course, the other, the other moment I love is you know when Strangelove finally comes on on the on the scene at the end, and he talks about how they're going to populate the mines, and how it, it's it's perfectly easy you just set up a computer program, to, and I'm like, oh come on, that, th- th- this is what's gotten you into tr- this is the whole problem. You still haven't learned the lesson that you can't automate error out of, or you can't automate human nature out of the equation. And yet they're still trying to do it. So I just, I, I you know. I just and then how that, how that leads to them. I mean, and this is maybe one of the last lines of the movie where, where, uh, uh, Turgeson is talking about the mine shaft, mine shaft gap. And it's like, whatever it is, we, it's, it's always this competition. It's always this. Um, the other thing that came to mind as, as he was describing that plan to save humanity, did any movies come to mind that we've watched? <laughs> it's downsizing, right? It's the end of downsizing. Right, with, with right. like, it's like I, I mean, that's a very different version of that. No, but it's no, like, yeah. oh yeah, we're going to go underground, and eventually we'll we'll be able to make our way back, make our way back up. So I love whenever we see those kind of connections there. I just I, the last thing I want to uh, talk about, and maybe just hear you talk about, is when I the first time I saw this movie again, I didn't really know it was going to be a comedy, but I definitely didn't know George C. Scott could be funny. Um, now I had a very limited experience with him. I, I don't think I'd seen Patton, I, but I think I mean my main memory of him was playing Ebenezer Scrooge in like the TV oh, Christmas Carol. So like he just seemed like this kind of grumpy, serious guy. And I watched this movie, and I still don't know whether I think Peter Sellers or George C. Scott is the best performance in this movie. Like I think he's it's unlike anything I've ever seen. Uh, I think he's so funny in this movie. I just the way that he can. Uh, I mean, it's a line early in the movie when he's talking about, you know, how many people are going to die. And he's like, well, I'm not saying we're not going to get our hair must or something. And it's not just it's not just the lines, but it's the way he delivers them. And like that character seems so it's so absurd, but seems so realistic. Like, I believe that guy. I believe that's what a certain mindset looks like. Yeah. and And he is competent. I mean, it, I mean, he's not a buffoon. He he is entirely he is entirely competent. Uh, Scott hated the performance, by the way. Hated Kubrick for the performance um, because you know Kubrick kept asking for different takes, and you know Scott would do them over the top, like he actually rolls on the floor, and and that's what Kubrick kept in. So <laughs> that's not what yeah. Scott wanted to see. But it's great for you, right? It's absolutely great performance, maybe despite himself. 
Yeah. Do you have other things uh, with, with, I mean, we could obviously talk about this forever, but are there other things you want to make sure we talk about? Yeah. I, I think I, I want to talk a little, just a little more about sex um, because I, I really think that this is a film you could use to teach uh, Freud. Um, you can certainly use it to talk about the death wish. You certainly use it to talk about libido. Um, you know, that um, sex is central to what happens with Ripper um, when he experiences some kind of, uh, you know, post-coital ennui and realizes it's loss of essence, which could be described as some loss of something else. Uh, you have the beginning, of course, which is Miss Scott in, uh, in Turgidson's, uh, and of course the name Turgid, Turgidson. Uh, she's in his bedroom. And, um, and, and, and then, of course, the, the whole appeal of the mineshaft solution uh, and it is, is uh, you know, these guys are going to have 10 women, particularly attractive women to every man. So there's, there's a way, and of course, the title, Strange Love. I mean, what mm -hmm. is the strange love in this film? The strange love for the bomb, the strange love for death, the strange love for each other? I mean, even at the end, you have the president sitting with um, a drink in his hand, and you have Turgidson with his arm around the president's shoulder. And, and, and the, all of a sudden, you realize it's just a bunch of boys hoping that they get to have all the all, all the girls to themselves right and, and even so, if you you know even if you so, no, go ahead. Uh, even if you think about the the just just to add one more image in here i think one of you know what the one of the first images in the movie is is are these huge bombers refueling and the yeah, image of that i mean that is a very sexual image as you know one is literally almost mounting another you know and 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 there is this sense that we have built these machines to it, in this sort of sexual way, even. No, exactly. That, that's actually where I was going with that, Sam, because the opening song is "Try a Little Tenderness," mm -hmm. um, and and then you and then you know when the music ends and the the bomber pulls away, you know, you clearly you have your you know your post your post intercourse moment, and then of course then we end with um, the ejaculation. Mm -hmm. I mean that, that you know the bombs go up and then you get you know uh, Vera Lynn's famous song. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll meet again. So to me, the whole thing is kind of, and of, of course you also have Kong going down on that giant phallic bomb. Um, and, and you have Ripper's cigar, you know, when he shot at that really low, low angle. So, I mean, really the whole thing that, and that's why, you know, the only, the only woman in the film is, is, is a sex object. Mm -hmm. So she shows up in Playboy magazine, uh, with a copy of foreign affairs on her, on her bottom. And and one uh, one of the stories they they talked about on Unspooled was uh, I, some film critic at the time wrote to um, wrote to Kubrick and and sort of brought some of these things up and his response was yeah you're the first person to say it but yes of course that's exactly what this is about so so Kubrick's with you on that as well. Um, so what do you have for next week? Well, I was thinking, Sam, what you said a couple of weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago, but you know you really like films that show you something different. Um, when we went into Memento. So I think a film that really, um, that, that kind of really wowed me by doing something that I hadn't seen a film successfully do before is Being John Malkovich. Um, oh, I love and that. It is, it's, not, it's not a matter of, uh, of formal inventiveness, so there is a bit of that. It's, it's more the way um, the plot unfolds. And, you know, it's, it's easy to have a great premise, but to follow through on it. And I love each turn that this film takes. It's of course written by Charlie Kaufman, uh, who's I think one of our great contemporary screenwriters, another guy that actually has lots of good ideas. 
Uh, and then also the film's got one of my favorite uh, actors in it, uh, John Cusack um, and, and John Malkovich. Um, I just love John Malkovich as well. So um, anyway, so it's a film that I, I haven't revisited in several years. And so I'd love to go back and take a look at it again. Oh, I, I, I have seen this and I, I've been, it's been probably a decade since I've seen it. I really, I remember being blown away. This is, I, I don't think about that when it comes to movies that like, opened up something brand new to me but it it absolutely it absolutely was so i'm very excited to watch that and to talk about that next week um barrett thank you so much for um giving me a reason to watch dr strangelove for a fifth time and i'm sure there will be a sixth a seventh and an eighth this is one that i can't wait i watched it by myself and i was like why didn't i watch this with with my wife and son because like they both i mean my wife loves this movie but like my son I think would really would really find this movie funny. So, um, so yeah, I this is one I'm just going to keep coming back to. Uh, so, thank you for uh, for recommending this and for having this conversation. Uh, we will be back next week to talk about being John Malkovich in the video store.